0: Radio on time on target ian scotto here with alex hollings before we get into anything uh i want to let you know about pelican really excited to have them on board uh they have hard-sided coolers that are all made in the usa most competitors including yeti make most of their stuff overseas they have an actual lifetime warranty a wide variety of sizes and colors which actually have 10 different sizes And 11 colors, so huge, huge variety to pick from there. Uh, Easy pull, hard latches that aren't rubber bands like the other guys. Pelican is a trusted brand since 1976. Their 70-quart cooler can hold ice up to nine days. That's pretty awesome because I feel like you go to a barbecue or something, and, uh, you know, by the end of the night... The ice is all melted. I mean, nine days. That's a long amount of time. Uh, I'm always
1: thinking about these things in terms of how long I could be drunk in the woods. You know, that's, a,
0: that's so, fantastic. They're light. Other coolers weigh 30% more on average. They have a built-in bottle opener under the lid. That should come in handy. Ergonomic handles, which make them easier to carry. Check this out. Go to PelicanCoolers.com and use the promo code Softrep. Here's the deal. I mean, you could buy Pelican Coolers just about everywhere. They're on Amazon and all that, but this coupon code is only good for the website, but it's a pretty awesome coupon code. Uh, so check it out. PelicanCoolers.com. Go to that website. Coupon code is SoftRep, S-O-F-R-E-P. If you're listening to the show, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with how to spell it. PelicanCoolers.com, promo code sofrep. Such a variety of stuff to choose from. I know, Alex, you were raving about them uh, as I was telling you they're on board all this month.
1: Man, oh, man, do I have some experience with Pelican cases. When I was out in Africa, you know, a COC, uh, for, I don't know if they call it something different in other branches, but it's effectively, you know, a field expedient command center that we put up over this. We could put it up in just a few hours. It's a huge building full of TVs and communications equipment and everything that we brought with us on deployments, we brought with us in Pelican cases. You know, it's tough to find something that can hold up to the kind of damage. Honestly, just that a bunch of 18 year olds carrying boxes out of a truck will, will, you know, subject your equipment to. And uh, I mean, as a result, I ended up using Pelican stuff to, for my wallet, for my phone when I was in country, you know, cause you don't want to get that stuff all wet. You know, I'm a big fan of Pelican. I didn't know they were a sponsor. That's even better.
0: Well, yeah, this is the first show that they're sponsoring and we're really excited to have them on board. Uh, with that. You know, I want to get into everything. I feel like this audience knows Alex really well, but, you know, there's new people tuning into each episode. So former Marine writer for the news dot com. And the newest thing since you've uh, last been on is now the editor of fighter sweep, which was our site that was sort of abandoned for a while. And now you're, you know, relaunching it and it's getting huge traction.
1: Yeah, man, I'm I'm excited. You know, I found my way to fighter sweep in an indirect path. You know, the previous editors of fighter sweep have all been military aviators and I'm not, I'm notably not a pilot, uh, running the site, but the way I found my way to it was by way of foreign policy analysis. You know, uh, a big part of foreign policy analysis is having a strong understanding of the military capabilities of friendly and adversarial nations, you know, and, uh, as over the years, I've done a lot of work on Russian military assets and Chinese, particularly their air assets. Uh, and just, you know over time, you know I've written about Chinese and Russian military air forces for you know for news rep, obviously. I've done it for popular mechanics a couple of times. Uh, and so when word came around that they wanted to bring Fighter sweep back, you know, I, I immediately emailed Nick Kaufman and was like, you know, I know you're probably looking for an outside editor, but I would be happy to jump in with some written content here. And, you know, just through conversation, he liked the ideas that I had for the site, the directions I wanted to go. I wanted to really emphasize bringing in expert analysis from military aviators, but I also wanted to include a, a bit of foreign policy analysis as as it pertains to These types of aircraft, a great example being China's J-20, Russia's Su-57, these are both fifth-generation fighter jets that theoretically are supposed to be direct competitions for the best things that we've got in the air right now here in the States. Uh, We're in a really interesting time when it comes to military aviation, and I I feel like I got a winning lottery ticket by getting to jump on board just as all these big stories are breaking. You know, We've got the F-35 entering into combat operations in Israel and with the Marine Corps this past year. You know, we've got the J 20 entering into production theoretically by the end of this year. Uh, it's going to be a big couple of years for military aviation. The news is going to be dominated by a lot of this new technology in the years to come. And I'm pumped about getting to position Fighter Sweep in a way that it becomes a source you can cite for reliable analysis about not just what these planes can do but how these planes capabilities really do change the way we interact as nations. You know? Yeah. I'm excited.
0: You're, you're kind of like Brandon in that sense. And I mean, Brandon technically is a pilot, but he wasn't a pilot in the military and was just a aviation enthusiast. Uh, I think people see his pictures online before they get to know him. They assume he was like a Navy pilot. Especially Absolutely. with the plane with the blue angel colors and all that. But, you know, I know just as a friend of Brandon's, even though he was a sniper, he's a guy who rarely is at the shooting range. It's just something that he did. It was a part of his life for so long. But he's flying uh, every week at, at, at the very least once a week.
1: I got to tell you, man, it is really hard not to fall in love with these jets when yeah. you're around them, you know? Uh, you go to it, just go to an air show, let yeah. alone, you know, being in uniform and being on base, but go to an air show and walk around some of these aircraft, this scale of them is one thing I think a lot of people would be surprised about. You know, you walk around an F-22, it's not like walking around a Toyota Camry, yeah. you know, it's, it's incredible. And what, so when you get to see these planes in person, or if you get to see what they can do in the skies, it's hard not to just be taken aback, you know, by how, in, the united states the world in general has kind of fallen by the wayside in terms of incredible advancements in the past few decades we're not li- building bases on the moon like we were promised for 2019 you know we're we're not flying around in hovercrafts like we hope we would be by now but the one place you can really find technology fulfilling the promises of previous generations is in military aviation you know there's if you look at a comparison video of a Harrier versus an F-35 landing on a carrier, for instance, you can see just how far we've come in a very short amount of time. You know, Uh, the the F-35, it lands like it's on rails. You know, it moves like robotically down. The Harrier is like wrestling a bear. You're trying to land that thing without dying is the goal, you know? Uh, So when you see things like that, it's hard not to just be like, It's hard for your interest not to be piqued, even if you're not an aviator. You know, I I started out analyzing, you know, I worked my way to aircraft by way of first it was, you know, naval equipment. Then eventually it became things like tanks, Uh, air assets kind of ended up being the last element of it. But it was the element that I fell in love with
0: very cool man is it by the way uh this is a little bit off subject but but sort of on the subject is it weird to you that i've slept over the uh hangar that brandon has in california uh, i mean i, I don't was think bat- it's weird at all no no, 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 no here's what i'm gonna say the the um the planes were awesome to see i i loved it all oh, that quote cool, was cool but that i i turned down getting in brandon's plane i i'm just very scared of getting in one of those little planes i'm not gonna lie guys
1: I got to tell you, for, from my perspective, and this is this is something I've had to come to terms with as a dad in the past year. From my perspective, it's always about if I were to die right now, how cool would the story be? Honestly, yeah, dying in a small plane flown by a Navy Seal is a pretty good story. Yeah, I, I know. I, I
0: trust Brandon completely, and it's I shouldn't even say fear. I'm just because I would get in it. I just know I wouldn't enjoy it. Just like I, if if someone convinces me enough to go on a roller coaster. I've gotten on, but for the most part, the whole time, I'm like, when is this gonna end? I hate this. I'm not. I'm not someone who's like screaming. I'm just inside, being like, ah, when is this gonna be over? I, I feel like I would have the same experience in one of those. No,
1: I could totally appreciate. It. But in a past life, back before I was a writer, I worked in the racing industry, and uh, a big That's part right. of racing uh, is they call them hot laps. You know, hot laps are, are usually something that you give as kind of an incentive or like a hookup for a buddy of yours. And what it is is, like, let's say you have a big race at Road Atlanta, for instance. Uh, I'm going to plug that because my brother runs Road Atlanta. So, like, let's say you have a big race at Road Atlanta. Uh, During a break between races, you'll see lap cars going out there. You'll see every once in a while a Corvette or a Ferrari hitting the track and doing a lap or two. Often, that's a hot lap. It's a professional driver with someone in the passenger seat that knows somebody or is a company hookup or something. And you're giving them an experience on the racetrack. Usually hot laps are pretty docile. They feel crazy to a guy who hasn't done 100 miles an hour, you know, approaching a 90-degree turn before. But if you've driven a race car before, hot laps are usually pretty safe, pretty calm. Unless you're a guy who has driven race cars and your brother or some other asshole you know is the driver for the hot lap, those are usually the times that you feel like your life is really in jeopardy. I'm very familiar with that sense of foreboding, like – I don't think I want to get in this car. (laughs) But but you've done it, it. you're saying? Oh, absolutely. I've done hot laps and I've driven hot laps and ridden in hot laps. And Lord knows just about every kind of cool car uh, on the market. But uh, every once in a while, my brother is a fantastic driver. He was a racer for a while. He became a a racing instructor for years before he got into the the executive side of racing. Uh, But uh, something about my brother putting me in a car always makes him want to try to kill me.
0: I've never, I've never been to like a NASCAR race and I, I've always wanted to, I don't, I I'm not like a NASCAR enthusiast, but whenever I just see NASCAR on TV, I'm like, this looks like a great time.
1: I'll be honest with you. I actually wasn't a NASCAR guy. So I worked, the, the racing team I worked for was an open wheel, uh, formula Dodge team, uh, which is, it's like an Indy car, but smaller. They're pound for pound about as fast as a Dodge Viper. Uh, so skip Barber racing is a whole series or used to have a whole series, uh, for these cars. It's really competitive racing, but the cost of entrance isn't quite as high as getting yourself into a million-and-a-half-dollar car, you know? Hmm. Uh, so at these racetracks, you see everything from open wheel to road course to the occasional Bush North-type NASCAR race. I'm not a big fan of oval track NASCAR races. It's it's boring to me. I know I, that, that'll piss like a lot of people off. It,
0: it looks like a party more than anything.
1: That's all racing is, man. Uh, yeah. When you go to, you know, for instance, I went to Petit Le Mans. I covered it for and for the Loadout Room this past year. And uh, Petit Le Mans is a, an endurance race where they have three classes of cars racing simultaneously on the same track. So you've got prototype cars that are like airplanes without wings all the way down to GT class cars that are like the the Porsche you would buy at the dealership. And they're all racing at the same time on crowded streets. It's intense. It's terrifying. It's exciting. But it's also like 12 hours long. So everybody who's there to watch the race is pretty much just tailgating for 12 hours straight. It's like, it's like going to a rich guy Woodstock. You, it's, it's pretty awesome. You can't yeah. beat it.
0: No, it looks like it'll be a lot of fun. So back with a uh, fighter sweep, I was actually wondering, why, while you were in the Marines, did you have any interest in the aviation field? Did you want to do something in that field,
1: possibly? You know, I wrote about this in an op-ed the other day about why recruiting is down. When I joined, my story of joining the Marines is different than a lot of folks because I was older. I was 21. Uh, I had already been turned down by the Marine Corps before uh, because uh, an old ankle injury from football. But then in 2006, we had this big recruiting push. You know, we really needed to get more guys into the fight. Sure. So I went back to the recruiter. My wife was in the hospital at the time, and we didn't have health insurance. Hmm. She was my girlfriend. Uh, we didn't have health insurance. So I went into my local recruiter, and I was like, hey, man, so you guys give health insurance for you know for the service member and the spouse, right? And he was like, yeah, of course. And I said, so when I sign the papers, when does the health insurance start? And he was like, well, the health insurance would start when you leave for boot camp. And I was like, fantastic. When can I go? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I signed, I, I got married, signed the papers, left on Sunday. I signed the papers on Wednesday, left on Sunday. So I didn't pick my job. Mm. I, uh, I told him I'd take any job I could get, which anyone who's listening to this uh, podcast and has served knows what a terrible yeah. fucking idea that oh, is. Sure. It was a, uh, it was a real bad call. Well, it worked out for me in the long run. Uh, but, uh, so I ended up at a desk for like the first year that I was in the Marine Corps uh, until I was able to kind of finagle my way out by, uh, volunteering for every kind of extra course I could find. And, uh, but throughout, uh, you know, my first duty station was 29 Palms and, uh, out at Camp Wilson, uh, which Marines are familiar with, it's where Mojave Vipers are located. It's where we train for deployments to Iraq. Uh, there's an airstrip out at Camp Wilson that you'd see Marine Corps Harriers landing at pretty regularly. And stuff like that. You cannot be driving through Camp Wilson, which is just a desert wasteland, and watch Harriers come flying over you and land vertically without falling in love. You know, uh, my wife worked at Camp Wilson for a while. We would just hang out near the fence and watch, you know, the, the planes come in. Then when I, when I changed duty stations, I went out to Massachusetts, and the closest large base was Hanscom Air Force Base. So we spent a lot of time on Hanscom Air Force Base again. Just watching aircraft come and go talking to pilots, uh, getting a sense of what life in the Air Force is like, which at that point, I really didn't know. Sure. Uh, spoilers, it's better. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, I just by happenstance ended up being surrounded by aircraft throughout most of my Marine Corps career. Never gotten the seat of any of them or anything like that. I just got to be awe inspired by them. You know, so now uh, working with Fighter Sweep and getting to interact with these pilots directly and really get their perspectives on things. Uh, it's really been a dream come true.
0: So you've been interviewing actual pilots since you've gotten the job?
1: Absolutely. I've been interviewing some guys. I've been talking to some guys. I've got something actually that Brandon is helping me put together uh, possibly here next month that'll be really, really exciting. I'll be doing some work hopefully here with some aggressor squadrons. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, aggressor aircraft are effectively now often contractor companies that operate own and operate their own fleets of fighters that they engage our fighters against at things like the Naval Weapons School, Top Gun School, uh, so that we can get experience competing against aircraft that aren't our F-16s, our F-15s, our F-22s. Uh, these aggressor squadrons are operating often dated platforms, but so are most of the nations we'd be flying against. Uh, you know, a guy in Hawaii actually just crashed and got hurt pretty badly. He was a mm-hmm. civilian contractor. I believe he was retired Air Force who was flying an aggressor fighter. I, it eludes me not right now which, what, uh, what airplane he was in, uh, but it, it's becoming more and more prominent where you're seeing civilians effectively, often retired military, flying civilian-owned fighters against our fighters uh, in training. And uh, I think it's a story that not a lot of people know about, mm-hmm. so I'm really hoping I'll be able to get get in the hangar with some of these guys, maybe even get some seat time in some of these planes and really tell people what it's like to be an aggressor pilot whose job is to fight the best of the best that we've got in the U.S. military. You know, I think it's uh, how cool a job is that?
0: You yeah. And, and I feel like for each of these like high risk job, there's a certain mentality that comes with it. And and interviewing guys who who do different high risk things. I see that, you know, when we interview EODs on here, I think there's a certain attitude they have or that snipers have. And I'm sure that that pilots do.
1: I would I agree, you know, and I uh, my experiences in the military are are a lot different than a lot of like a guy like a sniper, for instance, or, or a fighter pilot. But unfortunately, or fortunately, one of the the longer duties I had in the Marine Corps was funeral honor duty. You know, I, I was uh, a sergeant uh, on funeral honor duty for close to four years. Lord knows I did probably a thousand funerals. Uh, And the one thing I could tell you throughout is that you'll, There's you'll find that people whose jobs require uh, looking death in the eye, I guess, uh, on a fairly regular basis, you'll find that even their family members approach it in a different way. You know, Uh, it's like it's this understanding that it could happen at any time. It it really forces you to face your own mortality in a way that I think a lot of folks don't engage with. I think most of us pretend we're never going to die, you know.
0: It's interesting you say that because did you listen to the interview I did with uh, Christian Bussler who, uh, you know, worked on military funerals and had to, you know, bury these guys and put the, drape the flag over them? He wrote the book uh, No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor. I mean, we went pretty in-depth with that.
1: I have the book, but I only listened to about 20 minutes of it because that's how much cardio I did that day.
0: Got you. All right. I was like, I, when you said 20 minutes, I was like, I hope we, I didn't uh, bore you or something. You're like, all right, I'm done with this. I thought it was an interesting um yeah, you know, just an interesting perspective from a guy that you don't often hear, and and having to deal with death that up close and personal, and and how seriously he took the job. So,
1: you know, it led to a lot of personal growth for me. Because uh, the first couple of funerals that you work, and I, and I want to point out, a large number of the funerals that I worked for were for men or women that led long, fulfilled lives. They passed away in their 80s or 90s, sometimes, and they they earned their rights to a funeral honor service uh, through their service earlier in their life. A number of the funerals I worked, however, were not. You know, yeah. uh, Many of them were for people who were lost in combat. I'd argue more were for suicides. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: and it, it forces you to either, you either a- adopt one or the other perspective in order to survive funeral duty, in my opinion. You either empathize with everyone or you can't empathize with anyone. Uh, You know, and I I think I bounced back and forth between the two extremes a bit uh, over the years that I did it. But uh, the first few funerals that you work, when you start to see parallels between the departed's life and your own, when you see your wife's face in their face or you see your own kids and their kids, it gets really, really hard to carry out your duty the way you're supposed to, you know? So you've got to kind of distance yourself from it a little bit. So I would say early on, I think that I probably insulated myself. I tried really hard not to let the people's experiences uh, affect me, even though when you're the senior Marine on a funeral duty, uh, you might maintain a relationship with the next of kin for months or years. You know, I'm friends with some of them on Facebook still, uh, because it's your responsibility to kind of help them get through this process. You know, some of them are better prepared than others. Uh, some of them are, are more willing to accept help than others. Uh, but through that engagement, you can't help but grow, you know, and uh, it, it changed the way that I saw death It changed the way that I saw life mm-hmm. and it definitely changed the way that I saw service. You know, I, uh, I used to always say my job is to bury heroes, you know, that's, it's a, that's a rough gig, but the harder job is being those heroes, of you know? course. and it, it gives you, it gives you some great perspective.
0: It's interesting we got into this because I know that another topic that you wanted to discuss that connects with this is that you've been writing about the VA bailing on suicide prevention.
1: This is absolutely outrageous to me. For In, in case you haven't seen the article or any of the other headlines around the Internet about it, effectively, uh, you know, the VA has suffered a changeover in leadership rapidly multiple times in the past year or two. Uh, Under President Trump, there have been almost as many secretaries of Veterans Affairs as there were under Obama and W. Bush's administrations combined.
0: How how many have there been so far? Do you know?
1: I want to say there's been five. I've got it open somewhere around here. Although, to be fair, that's kind of a misleading number because one of them was a previously acting secretary of Veterans Affairs who then was appointed uh, the official secretary of Veterans Affairs. To be honest with you, that's neither here nor there. Uh, That's the excuse the VA has provided for effectively freezing their suicide prevention efforts over the past almost two years, mm-hmm. which is absolutely outrageous to me. Yeah, now, I mean, that
0: should be the number one thing, where we have more guys taking their own lives and losing their lives in combat.
1: As a reminder, uh, that tw- that oft-touted 22 suicides a day figure may not be entirely accurate. It might be closer to 21 and change. Yeah, But more than 20 veterans kill themselves every day. And even worse than that, Veterans in our age group, you know, the 18 to 35-year-old veterans, uh, they've seen a dramatic increase in suicides over the past few years. In uh, 2015 and 2016, which were the last years that we had real hard data that we can already pull from, uh, veterans aged 18 to 35 saw an increase from 40-point-something out of 100,000 veterans' suicides per year to 45. So that's a pretty sharp uptick considering the fact that this is something we're all cognizant of. You know, uh, in the media, on Facebook, it's hard to find something related to veterans without finding someone talking about veteran suicide. Yeah. And, and But the figures are showing that we're not making any progress. So then when you find out that the VA literally did not produce a single new piece of media content throughout the year of 2018 aimed at preventing suicide, despite having more than $6 million allocated to do so. When you look at the fact that the number and, and by of... by the
0: so- way, $6 million, when you think about it, that's a pretty small number.
1: Now, it's important to note that that $6 million was earmarked specifically for radio and television advertising. Got it. Directed at suicide prevention. We're not talking about their overall media budget. Okay. We're not talking about the VA's overall budget. We're talking about earmarked specifically for suicide prevention on television and radio. They didn't use it. They yeah. just left it on the table. You know, uh, in 2016... The VA posted 339 pieces of content on social media aimed at suicide prevention. The next year it dropped to 47. Explain that to me. As suicides going up, they're trying less to prevent it. And the reason that they've provided is that they've had a revolving door of leadership. You know, uh, to be fair, in 2018, the the National Director of Suicide Prevention was gapped for three months, that role. You know, it's an important role in this fight. Uh, When you're changing secretaries of the VA repeatedly, you know, it makes it tough to have a unified vision for the organization. However, I call bullshit on any of those excuses. You've got people who've been working for the VA for years. You know, you've got people who've been in these positions for years. They know what their responsibilities are. They know what the situation is. And they literally just dropped the ball.
0: And and you know what? I mean, part of me says, like, hmm, I wonder how effective these radio and TV ads even are in suicide prevention. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, I would think that a veteran who happens to be hearing it, who might be thinking of, uh, you know, doing such a thing, might hear it. And it might make them feel, hey, I'm not forgotten about. There's there's others out there like me. I mean, I would think that it would have to have some positive effect.
1: Now, I'm personal backstory for me, I uh I've had three Marines that worked with me out in 29 Palms commit suicide. You know, that's a lot. Yeah. You know, I'm one guy, I know four people who have killed themselves. You know, that's that's a really high number, you know. I was very closely involved in two of them. I I helped find the body of one of them. Mm. Uh, This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I I don't want to say his name, but uh, the first time one of my Marines killed himself, I was a Lance Corporal who had just been put in charge of his own shop. Uh, Two weeks later, one of my guys hung himself. It was really difficult on all the Marines that were with us. It was difficult on me as a leader. Uh, I can't imagine how difficult it was for his family. I engaged with them a bit, but they really weren't interested in talking to any Marines at the time. At the time, back then, we're talking 2006, maybe 2007, at the time, suicide prevention was already part of our training syllabus. Uh, But the military is really good at powerpointing things to death, and I'd argue most of our suicide prevention training really just taught those with suicidal ideations how not to red flag yourself. Uh, You know, we... We put up a PowerPoint and we said, look for these four things. So if you're the type of guy who's thinking about killing yourself, what you really learned from that course was make sure my platoon sergeant doesn't see me exhibiting any of these four symptoms. Yeah. You know, Uh, I, one of the other suicides happened post service. I talked to the guy that night. Uh, I didn't realize where he was. I carry a lot of guilt uh, surrounding those two in particular Specifically because I dealt with the people the day that it happened. I even at one point tried to engage with one of them because I was worried about it. Uh, And he, you know, he was really good at at I guess selling me on the idea that he was on the up and up. You know, but uh, ultimately, you know, you can play the what if game all you want, but it's hard for me not to play the what if game at three o'clock in the morning. You know, drinking in my basement. I guess if people at the VA. Uh, are willing to let suicide prevention go by the wayside just because they don't have a manager looking over their shoulder. It really makes me wonder if they have any real sense at all of how a suicide reverberates throughout the military community, throughout the veteran community, not just for the person who passed away, not just for their loved ones. Statistically, When one suicide happens within a unit or a veterans group, the likelihood that other veterans or service members within that group will commit suicide goes up. When you see someone commit suicide, it doesn't scare you away from it. By and large, it encourages you to pursue that same outcome. Suicide's a real serious issue. It's not just an issue because of decency and ethics. It's an issue for military readiness, active duty suicides will not just affect the section, the shop, the fire team that loses a Marine or a soldier, an airman, a sailor. It affects the entire unit. It affects the entire command. It affects your combat capability. Yeah. We're not engaging with this issue. And, you know, we're videotaping ourselves doing push-ups on Facebook. That's great. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm glad that people are trying to raise awareness. But at this point, I'd argue we're aware. It's time yeah. to do something about it. And the VA should be at the forefront of doing something about this. And instead – they spent the last two years just sitting on their hands. Uh and now they want to blame Donald Trump. I'm not a Donald Trump fan, yeah. but honestly, you made the sandwich. You need to eat it.
0: Yeah. I and, and as you're talking about this, just thinking about effective ads that they could be doing. I mean, I've interviewed, you know, I'm just talking about this from my own experience, plenty of guys who have had the issue of struggling with suicidal thoughts. You know, I think of Mike Schlitz, who lost um both his arms in combat and I'm trying to think if it's one of his legs. I mean, he he's anybody who's seen Mike Schlitz knows that he's heavily burned. Um, and he wrote an article, I believe, for Ranger Up about, you know, having suicidal thoughts. And now he's become such an inspirational guy, you know, running and uh, working out all the time. And when you see him, he's constantly in a great mood and it lifts you up. And I think someone like that doing an ad for the military would be really useful.
1: You know, and I. To bring it back to uh, to to our own stable, George Hand a few years ago.
0: Yeah, George Hand. Right. If you're not
1: familiar with him, he's. A, I mean, we're talking about a legendary Delta operator. Uh, yep. He wrote a piece about his own suicidal ideations uh, a few years ago that hit me home, like really hit home for me in a way that's hard to articulate. But when a guy like George Hand, who is, I mean, he's a GI Joe guy. You know, <laughs> yeah. he was built for this. You know, he's a warfighter through and through. One of the few, like one of the last bastions of a previous era of warrior, I'd argue. And for George to open himself up like that and be vulnerable to the world and say, even this guy, even George Hand, who is the guy you'd call if your daughter was in trouble. Literally. If George I mean, Hand. Literally. Yeah. You know, uh, if George Hand is the guy that you'd call when you're in the worst kind of trouble you can imagine. And he's struggled with suicide. It's not, a, it's not a question of strength. Yeah, George is strong. Strongest guy I've ever met. It's not a question of strength. You know, uh, a lot of times when it comes to things like suicide, we're talking about long-term depression or anxiety issues or combined, absolutely. But suicidal ideations themselves tend to be rather short-lived. Often, an yes. uh, intervention that day can often be enough to get you over the hump. Yeah, You know? Uh, I think it would be hard for a lot of service members to argue that they've never considered it. You know, uh, the SGLI, the service member group life insurance policy, is uh, it's a $400,000 life insurance policy. You get through the military while you're serving, right? And then you get a death gratuity, which is $10,000 unless you die in country. At that point, it's 120000 These numbers may have changed since I got out, but that's this is what they were during my time in. Your SGLI still pays out if you kill yourself. You know, uh, a lot of people argue that it doesn't. I know firsthand that it does. Uh, I know people have thought about it as a way to get their family out of a jam. Mm. Uh, I know people have seen suicide as a tool. And the reason why I think that this is more prevalent in the military is because you can't fill out one of those SGLI forms. You can't hop on a deployment without thinking about your own mortality. Right. Uh, You have to think about the fact that you might not come back. You know, and what would happen to your family if you didn't? For some guys uh, and girls, when you join the military, you join the military because you don't think that your your life back home has much left to offer you or you have much left to offer them anymore, right? So you're already a little detached often, right? You're already running away from something to a certain extent. Uh, then you then you miss home. Then you start to think about your family members back there. And what they're going through, and then, like in the case of, of one of my friends that passed away, uh, you know, maybe maybe your mom's losing her house. Maybe as a result of losing her house, she's also losing custody of your sister. You know, and when you start looking at those things and you start weighing that against your existential depression that's going untreated because you're afraid you'll be non-deployable, so you won't go to medical and talk about it, right? So here you are on the one hand, just miserable, and you don't really feel like there's much reason for you to go on, and on the other hand. There's a half a million dollars you could hand your mom. All you gotta do is kill yourself. Mm. If you're already leaning towards killing yourself, that's a great incentive. Now, I'm not arguing that we need to do away with the SGLI paying out for suicide. I'm not arguing anything. Yeah. All I'm saying is that we really need to look at suicide realistically. It's not just somebody writing breakup poetry because they're upset about losing their friend in combat. Suicide is just as prevalent among people who didn't deploy as it is among veterans who did. Yeah. It's not just about PTSD. It's really about this cultural issue that compounds on service members and veterans that we're not engaging in any real reasonable way. We're engaging – with awareness campaigns, after awareness campaign, after awareness campaign, it's important that we raise awareness, but it's important at some point that we engage with the problem.
0: Yeah. Well, well you know? said. And, I mean, if you listen back to the um, interview that we did with Carl Monger, who, who runs Gallant Few, I think we need more people like that. I mean, uh, there's you know, I know that there's all these different veterans charities out there, but I think Carl's is, is different in that. He, this really means something to him the fact that he gives out his personal number and says yeah. like if you're having those thoughts and you need someone to talk to call me and and so i know he takes those issues really seriously and i think we need more people out there like that because you need so, some of these guys just need someone to talk to and you and know that might just, that might prevent this
1: that's becoming more and more prevalent and in veteran circles and i love it you know I. Uh, uh, shout out to Weston Scott. Uh, he works for We Are the Mighty. He's a great guy. I've known Weston Scott way back when I was on active duty. I ran this, you know, this dumb uh, blog website that uh, got a little bit of traction, and uh, I interviewed Weston at the time. He was a former Marine. He was an arty guy uh, who went on to be a tactical advisor on movies. He was he had a show on G4 for a while. We still talk here and there, you know. And uh, not long ago, I was up late working. One o'clock in the morning is not weird for me to still be writing, you know. Yeah. And uh, I got a message from Weston on Facebook, and he was like, "Hey man, you all right?" And I was like, "Yeah, what's up? You know, what would what prompted this? You know?" And he yeah. was like, "Every once in a while, when I see other Marines still up at one AM on a Tuesday, <laughs> hey, you know, yeah. I just shoot them a message to make sure they're not drinking alone in their basement."
0: For you, so, you're probably just like writing, right? I mean, oh uh, yeah, uh, I
1: was just at work, but uh, our you know, job—it's
0: it, just—it's so funny how it is. No, uh, <laughs> it's just get shit right. done whenever you can get shit done because it's—it's funny, man. I like to, a totally different subject, but I do have friends who um. You know, if it's a Saturday or Sunday, they're like, wow, you know, why are you working? And it's, you know, maybe you want to do something on a Monday or something and so, you know, it's kind of cool. You do get to make your own schedule. But anyway, just I assume I think, for you, if you're schedule your
1: is a, bill- a double edged sword, because I don't think I've had a whole day off in three years. Oh, I don't, know.
0: I don't, I, I don't know. At least for me, I do. I'm, I'm lucky for that. But I, I
1: but, do all you know, the I'm, time. But. Uh, you as know, writer, I just really assume you're writing. Out, writing if man, you're up. I get the opportunity to put my work up on yeah. news rep fighter sweep. And, you know, when Scott over at the loadout room occasionally lets me, you know, jump in over there. I'm, I'm lucky as a writer that I get to spread my work out to so many people. But if if you give me a chance to set my own schedule, it just means I'm going to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. I, you, I, you
0: personally give yourself more work, though. I mean, you put out you put out a book but independently and and. I don't. I don't know. To be honest, how well the book is done because for the most part, if you independently publish a book, it's more of a labor of love. You're not. You know, most people independently publish a book. They're not getting a million dollar advance or anything. You know, it just you uh, wanted to put a book out.
1: My book did fantastically well for like a week, and then yeah, everybody. I think that's, how
0: it, it. Though, right? I that's mean, how it always is, though, right? That's how it
1: always is. I am. I'm over the moon with it with how successful it was because I really expected very little, and instead, I think I peaked at like number eight. That's in my cool. category on Amazon for a few days, yeah, uh, which was fantastic. You know, uh, especially because it's a it was a, a the book is called The Perception Wars. It's about how foreign influence campaigns can affect us here in the states, and how our foreign influence campaigns can affect others. It's another subject that's near and dear to my yeah. heart because I think it speaks directly to how we live nowadays. You know, and uh, so I was not only was I stoked to see it get so much traction, but I was really excited to see readers on News Rep. Uh, you know, commenting and being like, oh, I read about this in your book. You know, it's that's like, cool. as a writer, and I've always wanted to be a writer, there are a few things that can make your heart skip a beat more than someone saying, I read this other thing you wrote in this other place. <laughs> yeah, you know, they so I assume, I,
0: that's why I assume if you're up at 1 a.m. or 3 a.m., you're writing because it's like you also have a daughter, for those who don't know that, you know, it was a baby, so.
1: And, and that's the other best part of this job, man, is that, yes, I do maybe work nonstop all the time, but I'd argue a, a solid half of that time. My daughter's on the floor next to me. You know, yep. I can take a break anytime I want. This job's, it, it's a winning lottery ticket. It's the best job in the world.
0: Yeah. You know? So, so just kind of uh, wrapping up the, the subject we were talking about, though, I'm just wondering from your perspective, that money that's allocated to stop veteran and mili- active duty military suicides, what, what do you think should be done with that? Like, what, what would you personally do? I know it's TV and radio ads. Like, well, what do you think would be effective?
1: Well, first off, you touched on something earlier that I think is really important. The VA does not currently have any model or system in place to gauge the efficacy of their initiatives. Uh, So they try things. Let's say they spent that full $6 million. I think it was $6.2 million. Let's say they spent all of it. They don't have any procedures currently to judge whether or not it was successful at all. Uh, So – if this year they, you know, they mounted six one million dollar commercials starring Troy Aikman and Will Smith telling you that suicide's bad, they really wouldn't have any way of knowing whether or not that worked anyway. So next year they might do more of the same to no avail. They need, first and foremost, to establish a system that creates some kind of quantitative basis to gauge the efficacy of these of these efforts. I know that's really difficult. This is a qualitative issue. It's hard to take – it's hard to give hard numbers to things like suicidal ideations. Suicide, yeah, I would, I would think, though, if
0: you do, um, you know, like a market research thing the same way they do for everything else, get, you know, 100 veterans in a room or something, you know, how effective do you think this ad is? Does this speak to you?
1: I think that's worth doing. I, but it's important to note that uh, when you do that, that kind of market research – uh, you're relying on self-reported information. And self-reported information becomes increasingly less reliable the more sensitive the information is. Uh, it's the reason why like the statistics we have about alcohol consumption in the United States don't coalesce with the statistics we have about alcohol sales. Yeah. Because when you go to the doctor, he asks how often you drink, and I say socially because I drink every day, but I talk to people every day. So as far as I'm concerned, that's social.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny when they ask me and they're like, how often do you drink? And, and I'm like, never. I think they think I'm lying, but I I really don't.
1: I'm sure they think you're lying because <laughs> they're
0: like, the never. Yes, never. Me, I thought you were lying. <laughs> I haven't had a You know, I'm not. And it's fun, and then the other thing is people assume I'm like an alcoholic or something. I, I just haven't had a drink since uh, I think I think March. I just have not I respect that, man. I, yeah, really whatever. Do. I, I respect
1: mean, the hell out of that. Yeah, but. But, uh, you know, when you go to the doctor and the doctor asks if you smoke, you know, if you're the type of person who quit six months ago but still smokes a cigarette every once in a while, you say no.
0: Or even if you smoke weed, right? I mean, because if you're someone who smokes uh, like a blunt that has tobacco in it, you know, it's still the same shit.
1: I actually – I've got a a whole different tirade I could go on about that (laughs) because I've got a buddy who's a Vietnam veteran who uh, recently went in uh, to have, uh, you know, something – they're trying to see if he's got cancer. And uh, the doctor asked him, he's like, do you smoke? he said, no, but I do smoke pot every once in a while. Yeah. And, uh, which here in Georgia is a big no, no, you know, (laughs) that's so funny uh, because
0: in New York, no one gives a shit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Here, here down in Georgia, that's still close to being a communist. Uh, so he's since then just been inundated by calls from the hospital and other narcotics treatment facilities, asking him if he wants to, you know, if he wants help kicking his pot habit. And he's like, I haven't smoked weed in a couple of months. Yeah. just do sometimes, you Dude, know? That, and it, right. It's
0: so, I, I know we're, we're both going like so ADD here, but that's yeah, so, this is, that's yeah, so weird after, to me how much different state by state the attitudes are towards these things. Because like in New York, I could walk outside the studio and you could smell weed, you know what I mean? No one really cares, including the police. They, it's just not like a non-issue here. And it almost reminds me of this, uh, you know, different subject, but I saw... Uh, I don't know if you – I just follow Kristen Beck's Instagram and Twitter and everything, and I know um, Kristen Beck went through, like, the facial feminization surgery and everything and wrote a post about how, you know, now that Kristen Beck looks more like a female, um, wrote, you know, I didn't get anyone harassing me or Bible-thumping with me or saying all this crap. And, and, like, to me, that's kind of foreign because, like, in the streets in New York, if you're transgender, like, no one really gives a shit. No one really cares about you, if you're like a flamboyant gay man. New York. It's it's like a totally different culture here. Now, like if Kristen Beck walked around the streets of New York and no one would look twice at her or however you want to label Kristen Beck.
1: My perspective of New York is different than yours, obviously, because you're yeah. there every day and I live in the woods and hate the city. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in my opinion, in New York, the reason why no one would engage with her isn't because people don't have those prejudices. It's because you're insulated by an overabundance of people. In New York, you tend not to talk to your neighbors even though your bathroom wall – like you can hear them showering through it. Yeah, but you
0: know, I I have to say, man, you would get more dirty looks on the streets in New York City wearing a Make America Great Again hat than being transgender. Oh, I I don't doubt that one bit.
1: Uh, But uh, I think that you'd find – like here in Georgia uh, where you'd expect racism and and sexism and uh, prejudice against the LGBTQ community, I found overwhelmingly people don't give a shit. Yeah, You know, you like rednecks may have (laughs) beliefs about what they want their daughter to do, Yeah, you know, but by and large, they don't really give a shit about what you do because they tend to fall into the old school conservative category of stay out of my living room. Yeah. You know what I mean? Don't bother me. Uh, I think that uh, I think that this kind of speaks to that rural versus urban break that we have where we think we're so culturally different. The truth is, is that we're represented very differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I moved to Georgia from, from Boston. Mas- yeah, from so,
0: Massachusetts. So
1: yeah. So it, it was a it was a dramatic change, and when I came down here, I was expecting to live in an episode of Moonshiners. You know, <laughs> and and I was expecting you know because my best friend's a Dominican guy. You know, like I, I had all these concerns that I was going to be that I was going to have to worry about. You know, uh, my daughter being raised to think creationism was was true vice evolution and, you know, and things like that. Uh, when Once you get here, there are those elements. Absolutely. In my opinion, though, at least in my experience, they're a vocal minority that ends up skewing our perspective of the South. You know, yeah. there are lots of very bright, very educated intellectual folks with a Southern draw. Oh yeah,
0: for sure. I agree. When I, like when I went to South Dakota, I, I didn't feel anybody was all that different. The biggest difference is just people being way more polite, way more, um, uh, way more trusting. I mean, it was the first time in my life that I got gas and was told I couldn't pay in advance. They were like, oh, pay after. Like <laughs> yeah, with cash, it was, yeah, but, it was a totally different. But I
1: think it's important to note that because of that, because you'll find much more of that positive element than you'd expect in places that you think would be, you know, a very prejudiced. I think that you would find more prejudice in a place where you don't expect it. It's just better hidden, you yeah. know? And I think hidden prejudice, in my opinion, is the much more dangerous kind. I'm much more concerned about you making a hiring decision inside your head based on your own secret prejudices than I am about whether or not you'll give Kristen Beck a snide remark on the subway. Honestly, okay. that snide remark, it means you're worthless. If if you're the type of dude who wants to pick a fight with somebody just over what they're wearing, you're an idiot.
0: Kristen but, Beck, you know, I think you'd be stupid to pick a fight with Kristen yeah, Beck in the fair. first place. You
1: um, know, but uh, – if. I think that those outspoken prejudices are the ones we're the most worried about, and in and the real world, they're the ones that end up having the least effect on how we live. It's those ones in New York City that you know you can't get away with out loud that mm. I worry about.
0: So back to how we got here. As I said, we yeah, we're both super ADD, right. but I always remember how we got here. Uh, so That's why you're the radio guy. <laughs> how that money uh, should be allocated, and, and you were saying that it's you know it, it might not it's be correct. effective.
1: So first off, we need a way to determine its efficacy. You're 100% right. The second thing that I would really love to see is a big effort towards destigmatizing, seeking help.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'd also like to see a push away from medication as your sole source of help. Now, I've said it on this podcast before. I've taken antidepressants for years. Uh, For me, I've gone on and off. I've gone on them. I've gone off them. Uh, every so often I just get this idea in my head that I don't think I need this anymore. I'll hop off them for a while and then I'll be like, Oh, you know what? I was a better version of myself with when I was on it. Uh, most recently I started taking them again when my wife got pregnant because I didn't want my baggage to be my daughter's problem. You know, I can, I, I tend to isolate myself when I'm in a bad place and that's, that's a bad place for a dad to be. That's not a good father, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so I, I got back on the bandwagon, uh, For the sake of my daughter, but I'm still not 100% sure that it's not the placebo effect, I guess. And the problem is statistically looking at antidepressants, it's really hard to know uh, that you're not just going on the placebo effect. Uh, In blind studies, antidepressants fare only slightly better than placebo in terms of helping long-term depression. In part because we don't really understand how antidepressants work. So when you look at the real studies, the real data, it says your best chance at combating long-term depression, your best chance at combating suicidal ideations is a mix of medication and treatment, therapy. Therapy alone is not as effective as therapy without medication. Medication without therapy is only slightly better than placebo. You put them together and you have a pretty effective solution for depression. Mm Solution is probably an unfair word, but at least method of treatment. The VA doesn't lean on that concept at all because it would need to staff counselors and it would need to make it somewhat feasible for you to get an appointment, which right now, as most people who attend, who go to the VA for medical treatment can tell you, you need to set your appointments, you know, three months or more ahead. And then when you get there, you're going to sit in the waiting room for six hours before anyone sees you. If you have a job, it makes it really tough to do, you know. And if you make an appointment and then leave or don't attend it, the VA will punish you. Yeah. I had the VA set me an appointment for my knees, which was the condition the Marine Corps retired me for. I, I had a bunch of surgeries on my knees. Uh, when I wasn't able to make the appointment because they set the appointment with a past tense date with a clerical error, they sent me another letter saying that they have, they've decided that my knees must have resolved themselves because I didn't seek treatment. Mm. So they took away my disability. Uh, and then I needed to either – file an appeal, which takes on average two to three years, or start an entirely new claim, which takes on average two or three years to get my disability payments for my knees back. So the VA first makes it too difficult for you to seek treatment and then punishes you if you don't take it when they demand you take it. It makes most veterans not very apt to go seek treatment with the VA, you know, if you can avoid
0: it. Completely fucked up model.
1: You know, so let's say you do go. Let's say you make your appointment for 3 months because you're really really upset right now. Let's say today I'm on the edge. You know, today I'm standing at the edge of of my apartment building and I go, "No, you know what? I'm going to get help." I call the VA and I make an appointment so that I can go speak to a counselor. They set the appointment for 3 months in the future. Let's just say I make it to then. And then in the case of one guy this past year, they canceled that appointment and then a series of other ones until he lit himself on fire in the VA parking lot to commit suicide. I remember that story. But let's just say they give me that three month appointment, right? So now I've waited three months since I was at what I felt like was my lowest point that day. They will prescribe me an antidepressant and send me on my way. Assuming now an important part that you need to consider with depression is that it tends to make you inactive people who are really clinically depressed. Don't have a whole lot of initiative, you know? Uh, so they give you this prescription and you need to go fill it, right? For a person who's suffering really, really hard, bad clinical depression, going and hanging out at CVS for an hour waiting for your meds couldn't be a real challenge. But let's say you do that. You take your first pill that day and it's going to be a minimum of four to six weeks before that medication has any actual effect on you, Uh assuming it has any effect on you at all, assuming you're part of those people who score slightly better than placebo taking that medication. During that four- to six-week span, because it's such a gradual change, it's really difficult for you to assess if the medication is helping or if I'm just getting over it. Yeah, Maybe I was just in a real bad spot, Yeah, you know, and I'm bouncing back. So five weeks in, you're like, I don't think I really need this shit, and you stop taking it. If you stop taking antidepressants cold turkey, that can throw you in a spiral. Mm. Let's say, let's say though, you haven't been taking it for that long. You cycle off properly. You just stop taking it. Three months later, you find yourself in that same bad place, and you don't know what to do. You call the same phone number. You start the same song and dance over again. You never get any better. Yeah. Eventually, one of those cycles could be the one where you reach a point that's low enough where you're like, this has happened to me so many times. I'm never bouncing back from this. I'm just done. You know, Suicide is not – I think people mistake suicide for a big dramatic act. I think more often than not, suicide is seen as an act of mercy mm-hmm. uh, in your head. You're you you can't do it anymore, is what you think. It hurts, you know. Uh, so suicide, even though it's a physical act, feels easier than hurting more, you know. Uh, so what we need, the VA needs to do, because the VA should be at the forefront of this, is we need to get rid of the stigma associated with seeking treatment. But we also need to provide actual treatment, you know, Uh, until our solution isn't just throwing you a bottle of pills and telling you we'll see you in six months. We're not actually going to see any change, in my opinion, in the veteran suicide rate. You know, we've been we've been throwing pills at vets for years, you know, and it hasn't done anything since. If anything, all we've really done is managed to get a whole bunch of people addicted to opioids, which will then make you even more prone to suicide.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that because next week coming on the podcast, I'm really excited to have Peter Gidry. Um, there's this documentary I've talked about on the podcast on Netflix called "The Leaf of Faith" about kratom, which I don't know if you're familiar with. Um, I'm not. Yeah, so it's it's a natural substance that a lot of people are taking, and they're saying it helps um, it helps get people off opioids. And Peter Gidry was in the documentary. He's a veteran who runs a veterans group um, out of Vegas. They do all sorts of cool stuff with. Um, they're they're very like active with doing athletic type of stuff. But he's a huge advocate of kratom, and he says that kratom has helped him from aggressively acting out due to post traumatic stress and, and that type of thing. His wife is a veteran as well, so it was just one of those things where, as I said to Jack, like whenever I'm do, doing something else in my life, uh. Something will come across my mind sometimes of like, how can I use this on the podcast? And right when I was watching that documentary, having nothing to do with the podcast, when I saw Peter Guidry, I it's like I got to get this guy on. So I'm really excited. I have him coming on next week um, because we've had guys on the podcast, like a New York Times writer who, who talked about a study that ecstasy is helping post traumatic stress is crazy. Yeah, MDMA
1: has proven to, to be pretty successful. Yeah, and this is. I'm a square, you know. I uh, like I was. Probably the most anti-weed guy you probably could ever meet late into my 20s. It wasn't until <laughs> my mother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer that – and she started smoking weed to eat that I was like, I guess this this didn't – you're not a crackhead. You yeah. know what I mean? You're just a, a lady smoking weed. Uh, I think it's how you use
0: it. I I think it's, you know, there, there is that stereotype of like the lazy guy sits at his house and does absolutely nothing all day. And then there's the people who are super motivated and, and they happen to smoke weed. It seems to me, man, it
1: really does. Yeah. I mean,
0: it just, you can't, you can't put every, everyone in a box. I think, I mean, personally, I don't think I'd be able to function that well on it. Uh, Other people, they seem to do fine. So
1: to me, I've, I have officially retired my judgy pants. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like whatever it is, Like, I drink too much. I'll readily admit that I drink too much. (laughs) You know, whatever it is that you do that gets you through your day, if you're fulfilling your family obligations, if you're being a good parent, if you got kids, if you're doing your job, you're getting through your life. I don't. I don't care what kind of porn you watch. I don't care if you smoke a bowl on your couch. It's not my business. Yeah. You
0: know, as long as it's not. You know, I. I, I don't think you could truly be like a functioning heroin addict. You know, and some people would I, say I agree. that you can. I, uh,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah. there are. There's guys on Wall Street.
0: Say. Yeah. There's guys on Wall Street who you know are like you know millionaires sniffing coke every day. But is that a healthy way to live your life? Uh, uh, now not. see,
1: that's where you're going to get me because yeah, I agree. I don't think anybody should be a heroin addict, but honestly, I don't give a shit if you're living your life in a healthy way. That's, yeah. I honest. Uh, now you could make you know macro arguments about uh, the cost to our overall health system, our medical system, because of people who, for instance, eat too much and are morbidly obese, and then we have to pay for their medical care when they don't have insurance. But uh, if we want to make that argument, we got to outlaw McDonald's the same way we got to outlaw everything else. Yeah. I do I am not a, one of those libertarians who say, let's just legalize all drugs. I think that's that's foolish. However, uh, I really am a strong proponent and kind of what what I call classic classic conservatism, you know I like I don't care who you marry, I don't care what you drink. I don't care what kind of porn you watch. And as long as you're not hurting anyone else or the country, for the most part, I really don't much care about what you're doing in your house now. Things like heroin and stuff, I can make really strong arguments about how that hurts the country. You individually doesn't, but as a whole, it certainly does. Uh, And and that's the reason that's that tightrope walk of freedom, right? That we always have to make. We're always balancing between fascism on one side and anarchy on the other, right? We've always got to find this balance. And a problem we have in politics is this belief that one argument can just be universally correct while the other one is universally wrong. The fact of the matter is, is that that this is experiment in democracy that we call America is based on a tightrope walk. It's not based on putting all of our chickens in one basket. It's based on this constant debate and this constant argument and drugs being one of them. You know, I I honestly at this point I'm all in favor of legalizing marijuana, but you're not gonna catch me being in favor of legalizing morphine or heroin because of the same drug.
0: Yeah. You so- know, I am interested in in Peter Gidry coming on, and and I think the interesting thing, too, is that when I mentioned Kratom to Jack and when I mentioned Kratom to you, you guys were like, I'm not familiar with it, which tells me that a lot of the country is not familiar with it. But here's the crazy thing. Driving around um, just Long Island, I don't see it as much in the city. I have seen gas stations that say, you know, we sell CBD oil and we sell Kratom. Because it is legal right now, I think it's I think it's legal in almost every state. I believe CBD
1: I, I could, oil is even legal here in Georgia. Yeah, I, and,
0: and I mean it, it doesn't get you high or anything. So I think uh,
1: I'll say I've I've taken CBD oil in a couple different ways because uh, you know again background on me I, on my way out of the Marine Corps I had five surgeries in two years, uh, uh, two on my ankle, three on my knees, and one on my abdomen. Uh, multiple injuries from different situations. Uh, but when I was getting out, uh, I had you know I. Throughout those surgeries, uh, my last surgery, I actually got on terminal leave uh, from medical hold. I, uh, you know, I had like a near limitless prescription to not just one opioid but multiple. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'd go to my my orthopedic surgeon that did two of my three knee surgeries, and he'd give me you know a bottle full of Oxycontin and then I'd go to the surgeon that that did my stomach, and he'd give me another bottle full of Percocet. And unless I told him, oh no, man, I don't need this, they were happy to give it to me, mm-hmm. uh, not because their drug dealers trying to get me addicted, but because they know that I'm the type of guy who probably won't tell you if I'm hurting and I am hurting because I've got stitches all over me, you know? And uh, so they would, they would happily give me these prescriptions. Then when my healthcare transitioned over to the VA, those prescriptions just kind of stayed, you know, Uh, I was able to, I could go in and be like, Hey man, you know, I've got metal bolts and screws and pins and wire and every joint below my waist I'm hurting right now. Yeah, I slipped three discs in my back. I'm hurting right now. Can you give me something? And they were always happy to do so. I'm sure it's tougher now to get them than it was uh, when I got out back in uh, 2009-ish. Uh, no, not 2012. Uh, but uh, I'm sure it's gotten tougher. But it would have been very easy for me, I'd argue, to fall into opioid addiction during that period of time mm-hmm. because I saw I saw the the telltale signs of it already. I. I started out taking the pills when my parts hurt, right? Like something hurts, I took a pill. Then I started taking it to make sure things didn't start hurting, right? So, you know, I've got a whole bunch of, you know, healing surgery wounds. I get up in the morning, I pop a pill right away, even though the one from last night that I took before bed hasn't totally worn off because otherwise I know by 10 a.m. it's going to hurt real bad, right? So you take it preemptively. No big deal, right? Then you start – taking them preemptively without being sure it's going to hurt by 10 a.m., you know? And before you know it, you're just taking them. Yep. You know, it's just a part of your day, you know? My daily regimen for a long time was get up in the morning, pop a couple pills, take my vitamin, you know, pound a protein shake, go to physical therapy, come back home, pop another couple of pills, you know, like go about my day. Uh, It came to the point where I sat down with my wife and I said, I don't think I should keep taking these pills. You know, uh, addiction runs in my family. My father struggled with alcohol dependency his whole life, uh, along with a litany of other drugs when he was younger. Uh, I was like, I, I've got enough vice in my life without uh, adding to it. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I had a really strong support system. You know, my wife, we've been married. We've been together now for 14 years, which is crazy for a guy who's 33, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've got, you know, my mom and my big brother to rely on when times get tough. A lot of guys don't have that support structure. I was able to walk away from these pills before they became a problem for me because I saw the writing on the wall. If I were by myself, I don't think I would have seen it. Yeah. You know, you don't become addicted to opioids because you're a drug addict. A lot of times you become addicted to opioids because you're addicted to being able to walk. Yeah. yeah. You know? Uh, and then when you try to get off of them, you can't really get off of them. No doctor's going to give them to you anymore. You turn to harder drugs, leads to depression. You end up killing yourself two years down the road. And it started with pain management.
0: Yeah. You know? It's, so, so I'm wondering then when we, because I, I mentioned the CBD oil thing, has it had any, has it helped you at all?
1: That's tough, man, because I've only tried it a couple of times. And I'm like, you know, like I said, I'm a square. You know what I mean? So I think I was probably paranoid. You know, like, yeah. what's this going to do to me? I don't think I it will- does anything.
0: I, here's the thing. Ne- next to this office, I, re- I remember actually the last time you were here, I, I'm a big fan of Asa bowls and I remember you being like, what the fuck is an Asa Evil?" <laughs> but, yeah. but like, they're they're kind of big here. I mean, for those who don't know, it's um, like different fruits and uh, granola and shit. For, uh, for those
1: who aren't sure, he's in New York City. Yeah, Lots yeah. of weird shit is big there. I, I feel, like it's, I feel like it's big other places,
0: dude, because I've been in Florida, but um, recently, and, and you see, I, I think it's... Wait, it's so
1: is Florida your argument for normal?
0: Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> but anyway, so Juice Generation, which is right next year, which I love, they sell an Aussie E-ball that has CBD oil, and I, I tried it just because I was like, why not? And I don't think I felt anything at all. But you know, I also don't have... I don't have is- I'm not in pain, so, you know, I, I don't know if that's why.
1: The one thing I'll say I'm not entirely sure. I've gotten so uh, so there isn't any cartilage in either of my knees, right? So it just feels like peanut butter with gravel in it all the time. I'm just used to that, yeah. right? So I can't tell you for sure. Uh, you know, I I it was somebody's vape pen with CBD oil in it that I tried. I can't tell you for sure that it helped with pain. I honestly do think it helped with social anxiety, uh which you might not realize cuz I talk so much. <laughs> I'm incredibly uncomfortable in social situations. Oh yeah, I'm I do not wife. like crowds. Yeah, same here. Uh, I hate bars, for instance. Yeah, same here. Uh, but uh, the, when I tried it, I I felt as though I was a little bit more comfortable because it was a social situation. I felt a little more comfortable after. I didn't feel high, but I felt a little bit less panicky. And yeah, I don't think I, you're
0: supposed I, I, to get high off of it. So,
1: I have heard people heard of people using CBD for things like anxiety and depression. My my experience with it, I suppose, is. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it evidence, you know what I mean? Because it's just my own one-time experience, and who yeah. knows? And, but, and uh, you're, support that. Yeah, and also, you're a guy who's
0: big on, um, you know, talking about supplements and all that, and and from my experience, I think you'll agree, there's very few supplements where you could, like, guarantee, be like, this is having a huge effect on me. Like, there's stuff that, that I take, and I'm like, it, you know, maybe a factor, it may not. The only, actually, the only supplement for me, and, and it would be a whole different subject that I've ever taken that I am like, and I could point to, to physical reasons and all that, that I 100% stand by and I'm like, this has a absolute impact on me, is ZMA, which I don't know if you're familiar with, which is just zinc, magnesium, aspartate. I think ZMA is amazing, but like every other supplement I've taken from like multivitamins to the only way I've ever been able to see if they had any impact on me is from doing blood work and seeing like my, my vitamin D levels rise. But, but personally, I'm not able to be like, wow, this had a huge impact on me.
1: Well, supplements that are, there's a similar supplements face a similar problem that antidepressants do in that the change is so gradual. It's very difficult to attribute it to any one variable, right? So let's say you change your protein supplement that you take. Now, I I don't. The word supplement is the correct. It's the correct word because you're supplementing your diet. But people tend to think of supplements as either herbal remedies or advanced science, some kind of legal steroid. Uh, all real legitimate supplements are neither. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're backed by science and they are not a steroid of any sort. Right, protein being one of them. The idea that Uh, Your body builds muscle mass using the elements protein breaks down to, you know, amino acids, uh, as well as you know things like adenosine triphosphates that you use for fuel that you can get from creatine, for instance, and things like that. These supplements are—they exist in your diet as is. They exist in your body as is. You are just adding more in the hopes that you're gonna that you're gonna benefit yourself. It's not a guarantee. For instance, your body. The rule of thumb is your body's only going to metabolize like let's say 40 grams of protein in a sitting. That's the rule of thumb. We call it that because it's 100% not true for you. I can almost guarantee it. Nor is it for me or the next person. The truth is, your body's going to metabolize protein at a different rate than mine is. Oh, There's yeah. a million variables at play to that that dictate that. My wife's body's going to metabolize protein slightly differently than I do at a different rate. She may get more out of a protein shake than I do. If we drink the same protein shake, the rest of it's going to get passed through as waste. You're going to shit it out, right? So it's really difficult when you're taking a suite of, let's say, six supplements and you're eating different kinds of foods than I am. As we just discussed, you're eating shit that I don't even know what it is. (laughs) You're going to juice bars and your meals are liquids. I on the other hand I go to the grocery store and I buy a piece of meat and a vegetable and I put yeah, it on Yeah, th- that's
0: me for most of the most part to be I mean well, I know, no, I'm, just not, giving you a hard I'm time. not I'm not someone on a liquid diet for those wondering actually for me a big reason <laughs> that I'm into all that is just um getting enough amount of vegetables in for example. I like to have like a green drink, but but it's not a cleansing thing. It's just about like I'm getting kale and and uh Yeah, you're, you know, you're being consciously
1: involved in what you put oh, in the yeah, body. Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: But because of that, you and I – like let's say you and I were on the exact same suite of supplements. We were on the exact same workout regimen. Nonetheless, we would have very different diets. We would have very different sleep schedules. We would have very different stressors in our lives. All of these things compound to produce a different result. We're biologically different from the get-go. I don't think that you'd argue that you and I have a different build to start with, right? Of course. Some people are more prone to adding muscle mass than others. Other people are more prone to staying lean
0: than um, others. Yeah, I'm in camp number two.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> I started in camp number two, and now I'm just trying to stave off the diabetes. <laughs> but uh, you know, when you you take all of these variables, and so many of them are immeasurable, like you're saying, without blood work, without yeah. someone paying close observational attention to how you spend your time, so many of these variables are non quantifiable. Yeah, uh, they're just they're just mysteries out there in the ether. So when I go on your body space account, I don't know if you've got one. That used to be a thing I on use bodybuilding.com. My, I use
0: uh, MyFitnessPal, which I love. Yeah, I
1: use My Fitness Pal for my yeah. running. Uh, so when you go on that account and you see this guy who is yoked, you know, and you're like, I, I want to get on that guy's program. What's he doing? And you look at his suite of supplements. You assume those are what led to his physique.
0: Yeah, and he's Not on, the
1: four hours a day that he's spending. Not or, the steroids
0: he didn't include. Exactly, exactly. You know?
1: I know a guy who's a fitness model who did some modeling for – I don't know if I should say it – for HydroxyCut years ago. And I asked him about it at the time. I was like, do you have a problem with the fact that they're using your body to pretend HydroxyCut can do that? And he was like, no, because if you think you can look like this without steroids, you're an idiot. Wait, dude.
0: You've seen now uh, bigger, faster, stronger, right? Oh, I love that documentary. But that's the exact same thing in that documentary. He, yeah, said, yeah. and I think that guy lost his uh, contract because of saying that.
1: I don't doubt it. That's why I. That's why I was reluctant to mention. Yeah, my book. sure. Uh, but, but, uh, although bigger, stronger, faster did point out a lot of important misconceptions that we do have about steroids so, and the dangers
0: so associated with them. It's funny that we're mentioning this because going full circle here, the guy who did. Um, Bigger, faster, stronger. Mark Bell is the same guy who did A Leaf of Faith, the Kratom documentary. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's his documentary. Oh. It's, yeah, I think that's his fourth or fifth. I've seen all of his documentaries. Um, so that's what made me want to get Peter Gidry on. And, and back to what I was saying, like, I've been seeing more and more gas stations selling Kratom. And then when I went to Florida earlier this month, you see these. Things called Kava bars, which is kratom in like a tea, and you go to a bar and drink it, and they are all over the fucking place in South Florida. You cannot get away from it. Uh, Kava bars spelled K A V A. I think it's with a K or C, um, and they are everywhere. It is like the now, big thing. So, consider this is
1: an important thing for me to point out here, as as while we're talking about supplements, yeah, there is no FDA oversight on things like this. Right. Well,
0: well, here's the thing. So he talks about it in the documentary. There's politicians who want to, you know, who basically want to ban it and get the FDA involved, but I think right now it is under that supplement. But the, the weird thing about Kratom is it is not sold in, like, a vitamin shop. It, it's sold where, like, people buy vape and that type of see, stuff. See, now that's my and concern. And gas because that, you- And that's the concern of some people in the documentary. So you got to see it. So my point, though, is um, South Florida – is like the rehab capital of the world. All right. So that's why I think it's so big there. It's people getting off opioids and looking for alternatives. And that's why you see these Kava bars, everything. But if it's, if it's getting huge in Florida, I think it's going to be huge in other States really soon. So I'd like to be ahead of the curve, get this vet on to talk about the benefits of Kratom and his experience uh and you know and and have other people do their own research and yeah, maybe really it'll help some people he I, I don't think it'll hurt anybody based on what i've seen um you, you know the documentary may be skewed but i i i don't see any negative impact really i mean there the one suicide that they talk about and there's apparently been a small handful uh it seems like it could have been many factors and you know it's it's ju- it's much like um when I was younger, I, I was put on Accutane for acne, right? And before you start taking Accutane, they have to tell you about the side effects. And it's all because, I think, uh, because of one big lawsuit of someone killing themselves who was on Accutane. But is there really a link to suicide and Accutane? It doesn't seem like there really is, you know? So I think it's in that same camp.
1: Well, you make a great point about the importance of doing your own research and understanding that just because something has a bias, doesn't mean there's nothing of value to be gained from it. Provided, you you acknowledge the bias, right? So, uh, you know, people often will say, you know, CNN is for liberals, Fox News is for conservatives. I'd argue all the more reason to watch them both. Uh, you know, when you watch Fox News, when you watch a documentary that that is obviously selling you something, maybe not selling you a product, but is, but is it's a persuasive essay, right? Uh, it's important to look at the the. The points that they bring up in this persuasive essay objectively try to delineate between where you're getting subjective information and where you're getting objective information because every good persuasive essay has both. You know what I mean? And weigh them them equally. So for instance, when you're watching this documentary about Kratom, you may – you, because you're a pretty savvy guy, you work in this industry, you realize pretty shortly after starting watching it, I gather, okay, so there's – they have an angle. You know they believe something, and they want to tell me why they believe in it, right? That's the point of a lot of documentaries is I have a belief, and I'm trying to convey it to you. But you need to be able to differentiate between those beliefs and the objective facts. So if this documentary, with you being able to delineate between the two, it piqued your interest. Yeah, it's a good reason to do that. third party research, you know what I mean? Do a little bit of reading into it. It may well be the right thing for you it might not be the right thing for everybody. It may be the right thing for everybody, but don't trust a single source about anything. Right. Uh, But don't, Dismiss something just because of the source.
0: Exactly, I agree. I agree. You know, and and I uh, think to be fair, if people watch it, I think Mark Bell is pretty objective about it. I mean, he honestly, obviously bigger, stronger,
1: faster. I thought was a very well done documentary. Exactly,
0: so, and and I feel the same way about Prescription Thugs in this documentary. I mean, obviously, he has his message. I think that it is a pro procratum documentary. But he interviews a lot of people on the anti side, and I didn't find most of them very. Convincing. And
1: that's all I ask, you know. Yeah. Like for like, Morgan Spurlock is a great example of the other end of that spectrum, in my opinion. You know, uh, when you do some reading into uh, uh, what was the McDonald's documentary, uh, supersize he made? me, supersize me, riddled with errors, utter bullshit. It is a factually inaccurate documentary, and just about every which way you can come by. But it was a very marketable documentary. Morgan Spurlock wasn't trying to convince you of his perspective. He was trying to sell you a movie, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, and he has since done it with television shows and further documentaries and so on. I don't trust a single thing that guy says, you know, Mm -hmm. he may well have some important points, but because at this point he has proven himself to be an unreliable source to me, he gets filed in with Michael Moore. You know, uh, I know for a fact that what you're going to tell me is colored with bullshit, so I'm not going to try. You know, yeah. I don't expect you to come at me with no bias whatsoever. Even in objective journalism, there are inherent biases that we work hard to try to get rid of. But that's the importance of a good editorial team, because you don't always see your biases. Yeah. You know, you need to have a guy go, hey, man, you know, you're kind of you're cur- you're touching the line here a little bit and telling the reader what to think. Even I, I've been doing this for a while now, you know, but uh, every once in a while, uh, I'll either get an email or a note from one of the editors, or I'll read one of my own pieces myself, and I'll be like, "You know what? I think I should have feathered off of that a little bit because right there, it kind of seems as though I'm trying to lead the uh, lead the reader to a conclusion, and that's not my job. Yeah, you know that's not what I'm here to do. Uh, I think every journalist who's worth a damn uh, is worried about that. I think more and more there are fewer and fewer journalists that are worth a damn, yeah, you know. So
0: I was going to actually mention this at the beginning of the show, but, uh, you know, wrapping things up here, we just got so caught up in conversation that every time I come
1: on, man, we just, "This, this is my fault, not yours.
0: No, it's great. I love it. I write down a few notes and then we end up going all over the place, but I actually think this is a really important show. I mean, the, the main point of, of what we got into, and I thought it would have been a shorter discussion, but we ended up going really long and it was the suicide prevention stuff. And I think that that's a really valuable people are going to learn but what I was going to mention was that uh, Jack is not here because he's uh, I I guess feeling kind of sick it seems like he might be getting over the flu so that's what I
1: heard was that George Soros paid Jack not to come (laughs) because
0: Soros hates me <laughs>
1: but, uh, that's, that's what I was the word of the stream that's what I heard on Twitter
0: yeah um you know? <laughs> but hopefully he'll be back next episode I was like dude don't get me sick please so <laughs> I don't mind doing the show by myself but that's why yeah, he
1: didn't sound like he was doing well
0: yeah <laughs> so that that's why he's yeah. away but I we have plenty of awesome guests lined up for the next few weeks so that's great um but yeah wrapping things up here what what are you working on currently at both sites?
1: Well, on Fightersweep.com, you're going to find all kinds of really good content coming up uh, that's really delving into what it's like to be not just a fighter pilot, but what it's like to be a pilot. Uh, And this actually leads to something I'd like to get out there while I'm here. I am on the hunt for World War II bomber crewmen. Uh, I've got a a book project that I'm working on. I'm working on it through Hurricane. Uh, I want to tell the stories of guys who actually flew in bomber crews in World War II in a way that doesn't just recount the missions or, you know, their their accomplishments, but in a way that's engaging uh, for someone who's not necessarily interested in military aviation. These are human stories, you know, and we're rapidly losing our World War II veterans, yes. right? My daughter, when she's my age, isn't going to have a World War II veteran to ask, what was it like? I don't need... You know, she'll have plenty of sources to find out what day, what mission was flown on, how many bombs were dropped where. She won't have any real sources to speak to directly and say, what was going through your head? What were you thinking about? Who did you miss? You know, make these stories real in a way that's not just about a war, but it's about people. I'm looking for people with stories to tell uh, so that I can put them together in this book. I would love for you to reach out. It'll be working through Fighter Sweep and through News Rep, as well as in a new book. So please, by all means, reach out to me on Twitter, AlexHollings52. Reach out to me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash AlexHollingsWriter. uh, Or uh, by email, alex at thenewsrep.com. If you know somebody, if you are somebody, let me know. But uh, you'll be getting more stories like that on Fighter Sweep here in the near future, as well as just more analysis into how these stories are developing and how it pertains to our national security apparatus. You know, yeah. uh, Hypersonic missiles, for instance, may not be fighter jets, but they deal directly with our aircraft carrier operations. Without aircraft carriers, we don't really have a reliable means for Navy aviation to go out there and, and put, put bombs on targets. Uh, we need to be worried about China. We need to be worried about Russia. We need to be worried about our own defense spending. And Fighter Sweep's going to be giving you a lot of analysis about that. Over on the News Rep side, here in the next couple of days, go on, I beg you, read my articles about uh, our recruitment issues, read my article about VI suicide prevention issues. Uh, I also put an op-ed in today about uh, contemporary politics here in America and how we've just kind of accepted that we don't need the truth anymore. We just want whoever's the best salesman at their brand of bullshit. That's on the left and the right, Uh, so it might make you real mad. If it pisses you off, let me know on Twitter. I'd be happy to hear from people.
0: Yeah, these are important stories, man. I mean, uh, looking back on the show, I think we've had two World War 2 veterans and I think both of them I think both of them are are no longer with us. So I really value every time I get to speak to those guys. Same with every time I've gotten a meet in person a Holocaust survivor. I've probably met a good man. I've probably met about 8 or so Holocaust survivors in my wow. life and and as you've said, uh you know, like when your daughter is our age, they're not going to be around anymore. I've met, you know, quite a few of them, man. And it's you know, it's an honor. You know, my mom's aunt was a Holocaust survivor. And, you know, to get to hear those stories, yeah, in a dec- decade down the line, two decades down the line, they're all going to be gone.
1: You know, and this is of particular import to me because, you know, talking about funeral honors duties earlier, I was working a memorial service years ago. I think I was like a Lance. No, I must have been a corporal at the time. Uh, And I met this guy who had a big purple scar on his cheekbone, on his right cheekbone. Uh, He he was a former Marine. I knew that right away. He introduced himself as such. Uh, And I I try, you know, when you see, when you meet somebody with like a big birthmark on their face, the last thing you do is mention it, like Austin Powers shouting mole, (laughs) right? So, you know, I didn't engage with it. And then finally he was like, you can ask me about it. You can ask me about this scar. (laughs) Uh, He was in the Chosen Reservoir. He was one of the Marines. His rifle froze to his face while he was fighting at the Chosen Reservoir. You know, one of the, the, the frozen chosen, the chosen few, you know, we're talking about a real war hero, uh, a story I've heard a million times, a story every Marine knows, but to meet a guy, to look a guy in the face, to hear his story, to hear about coming back to his wife after made that story no longer a kick-ass story about Marines in the fight to me anymore. It made it a human story about a guy who was fighting for something, you know, uh, for me as a young corporal, that was incredibly important to hear. You know, uh, I think that it's just as important for later generations to be able to go back and pick up a book and read those firsthand accounts from guys who aren't talking about the foreign policy implications of bombing Japan. They weren't talking about the access powers versus the allied powers. They're talking about John fighting in this war and then getting home. Yeah. You know, uh, we need to connect with that because we need to remember what war really is, especially in today's day and age, where every time you see something on the news, people immediately shout, "We got to send troops over there." And then once we send troops over there, we shout, "We got to get them home." Uh, yeah. We're happy. We're happy to throw our countries into wars as long as we're not the ones fighting them. I want to make sure people remember what it's like to be the ones fighting those wars.
0: Yeah. To and be fair, though, too. I think I think less so. I think I think more and more people are are uh, more cautious about us going into foreign conflicts. And and it's part of whether you like him or not, why Trump got elected in terms of, of him being a little bit more critical of that.
1: I'm reluctant to agree with you. I hope you're right. Uh, but the rhetoric that I see on social media, yeah, you know, it's like with North Korea last year, where, especially on the conservative side, you saw repeatedly, like, we just need to invade. We need to get rid of Kim. Kim needs to be assassinated. You know, a lot of rhetoric based on the idea of us using military force to change the way things are operating in North Korea, when from an objective standpoint, we know full well that's a no-win situation. Even if we can go in and totally dominate the North Korean military, which unfortunately, despite our technological advantages, we likely couldn't, uh, based on just their artillery's capability to destroy Seoul, South Korea, uh, even if we were able to roll through them, we would then be faced with another occupational quagmire yeah. of keeping U.S. troops overseas fighting insurgent forces for years, for decades to come. We don't think like this, though. We go, this guy's a bad guy. we got to get rid of him. You know, uh, We can't think about our national security apparatus in terms of us fighting bad guys. It's got to be in terms of America's self-interest to sustain our well-being, looking towards the future. And as selfish as that may sound— It's pragmatic and realistic. It's the truth of foreign policy, even though in the media we really like to pretend it's all about ethics and morals. It's not, you know?
0: Uh, Wrapping things up here, be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. And gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room. uh, Drew Wallace. Those guys are currently working on bringing you 100% custom products for this year everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags i even saw that we're doing a protein line it looks like that should yep. be pretty cool uh it's a club for men by men you could check that all out at crateclub.us once again that's crateclub.us also you know that
1: stuff's not just for like cool survival stuff either man i uh i took a road trip up to kentucky for new years and i've got my breakdown bag in the trunk of my car i swear to god the whole bag was crate club stuff
0: yeah and i saw that
1: it it looks like i'm advertising for the company but (laughs) but (laughs) But i saw that uh
0: i saw that video too of uh eric meisner and scott whitner actually having to use um what what is it called To, to to get the jeep back on the road
1: a winch, probably? I didn't see the video. Yeah. A winch and a pulley? Or, oh, no, they probably used the toe strap from the crate. Yes, trap, which it was the I toe guess. strap. Yes, 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 Yeah, which is in my breakdown bag. You yep, know? They used I got it. a go bag, I got a breakdown bag right in my
0: trunk. They used it. It worked. And, uh, yeah, so also as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show training cell follows former special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing and much more. You can watch all of that content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership, only $4.99 a month That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, I'm going to mention the newest thing that you've heard me talk about in the last few podcasts, the NewsRep Financial Report, exclusive information that you can act on today to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. The NewsRep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector. Defense industry stocks can be a lucrative investment if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. By subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise. And here's the advantage of the NewsRep Financial Newsletter. Our team offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise, unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, full access to NewsRep's foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform, and access to our team of experts and analysts. So to do that, go to thenewsrep.com. There's a FinRep tab at the top of the page. You can sign up right there. So that's FinRep on thenewsrep.com. Really awesome newsletter that we want you to be a part of. We're excited for it. Um, and it's just something new that we are offering here at hurricane media. Uh, I guess that's about it, man. I mean, as we're recording this, people will have heard it already, but what is tonight is tonight the state of the union, I believe. Shit. I'll be honest with you, man. I, don't even know. I, th- I think it's, <laughs> I, I've seen people tweet about it. So I, 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 I know Trump is giving, uh, shit. is it?
1: State I don't of think the it union? should be tonight. Should it? I thought it was January 19th. I don't call me on that, man. I don't even know what day today is
0: uh, state of the <laughs> union. I I'm probably wrong. Um, it says – I will. I guess the news is that he is giving a State of the Union
1: – Well, yeah, he's January 29th. a televised address about the shutdown on the wall. That's what it is. Yeah, January
0: 29th, he is going to do a State of the Union despite any shutdown. And this is why it's – at least in New York, I see trending boycott Trump prime time because these people on the left don't want them to even air Trump even though he's the president – uh, well, the,
1: the argument is that Barack Obama tried to make an immigration speech in prime time that wasn't broadcast because they said that it was too partisan. Got it. Uh, however, I mean, let the here's the government is shut down. That's a problem. Well, you, you know what's the funny thing, really man, to Work together is a problem,
0: I, dude. People who have listened to this podcast have said I've been critical of Trump or I've praised Trump, but you know I'm I'm gonna be honest. Like as much as he loves to tout it, where he's like I'm a ratings bonanza, or whatever, he really is. I mean, if Trump is on TV, people fucking watch, and then well, this is what these news stations care about. They want viewers, no, no matter what's going on, and they are obsessed with Trump. It's all Trump all the time. I personally don't even watch the news, but I just know that, you know, that this is what they cover. And Trump is a ratings machine the way that he he loves to tout. It's true
1: here's my genuine analysis of the argument against televising Donald Trump. The studios intentionally waited a bit. They hesitated to say that they were going to televise it on purpose because then it became a trending topic. Then there became, Boycott Trump, as all the conservatives were saying. You have to give him an opportunity to speak his mind. Now we give a shit. If they had just said, "Yeah, man, we'll put you on TV," it would have gotten maybe a third the audience that it will now because it's a controversy. Uh, you know, it's the exact same thing as uh, there's a show on Netflix called what is it like the National or the uh, the Patriot Act, uh, where they, by Saudi Arabia's request, removed an episode that was critical of Saudi Arabia. Of course they did, because now it's free on YouTube and everyone's going to go watch the Patriot Act. It's trending now. It was an excellent marketing strategy. It's all about ratings. It's got nothing to do with policy. All
0: right. All I got to say is Alex Hollings, huge loser, failed writer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 uh. Uh, I'll
1: take huge losers, but I like to think I'm a decent <laughs>
0: <Yeah. dude. laughs> and, and, and No one can see the video, but I'm doing the thing. To, I, the, I, I don't do like a great Trump impression, but I do always have to do the thing where he puts like the um, the AOK in both the, the A-OK hands. Always has to, yeah. Every single speech, the, it, it's the exact same. It's the hand gesture that sells I
1: mean, Huge loser. Be with each other. We all know exactly what he's going to say.
0: Yeah, I, but he, We're just he's going
1: to tune in so that the Democrats can be mad that he lied and the Republicans can be proud of him for lying. I'm honestly Everybody's not going to tune in,
0: but I'm sure I'll see like highlights on Twitter. That's all I care about the next morning and, um, you know, everybody fighting over whatever he said. And, oh, my God, I'm so outraged. Yeah. Uh,
1: if you're not willing to to hear the other side of the argument, then how can you argue that you're willing to compromise? Right. Yeah. I Get just I just don't
0: watch any news anymore to be honest. I go on Twitter, I see what people are talking about. I read a few articles here and there, but um I'm, I'm not gonna lie to you guys, man. I, I just I don't I don't I don't care enough anymore. Uh,
1: <laughs> I, I uh, know enough to opinion, like I, I t-
0: talk about what's going on, but I'm not one of these people who's like tuned into the 24 seven news cycle. It's all the same shit over and over again. it's like, that's actually the big thing that's changed in my life since taking this job is that when I worked at Sirius XM, I mean, we had Fox news on 24 seven and then I would also see the other um, channels on in the studio. And it was like all this news all the time. And, I barely watched it at home. Now that I'm home and I'm here, like, I don't watch any of it. I really don't. Dude, and I 90%
1: feel... of television news is conjecture anyway. It's yeah, all bullshit. I, I
0: feel that I'm just as informed as uh, I, I need to be. I mean, I, I've talked about it on the show before, but, like, it's way more a split-screen debate than anything than informing you on policy. I feel fine just reading... Uh, you know, you guys reading the sources that I want and then seeing what, you know, as, as stupid as may be, what's trending on Twitter, what are people saying about it, reading some articles from different perspectives on it. And and then uh, I, you know, I see what I need. You'll to. end
1: up with that approach, a much better ri- rounded idea of what's going on, I'd argue, than just watching television news anyway, you know. But I'll say this as my as my parting shot, because I know that I was real critical of, of Trump here at the end here as a conservative leading guy, yeah. which I am. I would argue the last thing you want is Donald Trump up there arguing in favor of something that you want. He's not good at arguing in favor of things. Every time he does, he creates an incredible controversy. He provides the left with a dozen new talking points that make him look bad. The last thing, as a Republican, if you're if you were a Trump supporter, which it's pretty clear that I'm not an adamant Trump supporter, mm-hmm. if you are a Trump supporter and you appreciate the things that he's trying to accomplish, you should by now appreciate that he's not the best salesman for it.
0: Yeah, I, to the contrary of that, though, I, I actually watched um, Ben Shapiro debating some people on CNN recently. I am a huge Ben Shapiro fan. I like and ben by the way, I, I don't this...
1: always agree with him,
0: Yeah. but I like I watched this on YouTube, by the way, if anybody's going to think I'm uh, lying about not watching 24-7 News Cycle. like I didn't, I didn't actually see it on CNN. I saw the YouTube. But um, he said to... Um, What's his name, man? Uh, the guy who's my age, but he looks like he's... I, Brian Stelter. Dude, Brian Stelter is our age, and he looks like he's like a 50-year-old man.
1: I feel a little bit better about myself.
0: But, um, yeah, look him up. Dude, he, I think he's 33 years old. Jesus it's insane. I, I would never think that he's that young. I mean, he... Dude, I'm not going to lie, Brian Stelter not looking good for his age. (laughs) Someone's going (laughs) to give me shit, I'm sure. But anyway, so um, Ben Shapiro was on there debating her, debating. sorry, him and some woman, that's why I'm saying her, on CNN. And what he said was true, I think, in that he's like the mainstream media needs to stop picking a fight with Trump because it's a fight they're going to lose every time if it's the media versus him. Just report on what's going on. You could fact-check things he's saying, but if it's like this coverage of what a terrible person he is and, and how bad he is, like, it's just a fight that, that you know, that he is winning every time, and, and it's actually getting people on board with Trump when he makes it seem like the news media is, is against him and unfair to him. I, I think, you know, just report on what's going on, and if he's lying about something, you need to report it, but there are times you watch the news and it just seems like it's a 24 7, you know, Trump bash and it's the
1: boy who cried wolf, you yeah, know, there and- are, there have been legitimate things that Donald Trump has done that I have found to be a really poor decision. There's also been things he's done. For instance, his push for space defense, whether you think the space force is or isn't the most economically efficient means of space defense, we need space defense and he's made it something we talk about. Uh, he's not always wrong, but when you paint it as though he's always wrong when he is, the teeth are out of your argument. Well, Jack, you know?
0: Jack wrote an article on this on the News Rep, and Jack has been extremely critical of Trump, and he Absolutely. wrote about how... Um yeah, and at the same time, you know, I think he's a critical of every everyone. I don't want anybody to think. I this think he like, should be. Yeah, this yeah. is Jack. You know, picking a, he, a fight with just Trump. He, he was extremely critical of Obama, so I'm not. It's not a bias thing. He's he's just it's a,
1: speaking truth to power uh, is what it is.
0: Exactly. So, but I'm just saying he's not he's not a guy who sugarcoats what Trump does. But he wrote an article. He talked about it in the last episode. Um, about how the media was saying, when is Trump going to visit the troops? This is an outrage. And, and then, then when he, he did, did visit the troops, there was an outrage over that. You know, so Absolutely. it it really is true that like it's just the media is looking for anything to bash Trump. And it and I think Trump wins in that fight every time. As Ben However, Shapiro said.
1: this is this is where I'm, this is insider baseball that I could go on for another whole podcast on. So I'll be concise. <laughs> A lot of the reason why you see so much Trump in the press, especially anti-Trump in the press. It's not because the media wants necessarily to only post or write anti-Trump articles. It's because those are the traffic drivers. You know, the media is ultimately a business. It's a number of businesses, Fox, CNN. The reason why when Donald Trump does or says something really stupid, Fox doesn't run that as their headline, but will instead run a headline about a criminal who is an illegal immigrant is because they're selling space. They're selling real estate on their website to their audience. The reason why when Donald Trump says something that's good or uh, some senior official says, no, this is a really good idea, they don't run that as their headline either. They run something about how Donald Trump said something dumb last week for the same reason. They're selling real estate to their yep. audience. They're not that interested in informing you. What they're really interested in is getting you to glance at the advertisement on the side yep. of their website. You know, And as long as uh, right. anti-Donald Trump articles get just as many hate shares as they do support shares – As long as Donald Trump supporters hate read these articles for the sake of commenting on them at the bottom, that's currency in a digital market. When you hate click on an article, that's currency. You're paying them to write more like it.
0: Yep, absolutely. You know? I've said, and that's before, what we're getting
1: with Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, I've mentioned this before. I think on this podcast, I've definitely mentioned it on the Power of Thought podcast. When I got my degree in radio, um, probably actually definitely the best professor I had was this guy named John Mullen. He's the guy who, um, one of the people behind making Hot ninety seven in New York, a rap station, which you know it's the most successful rap station of all time, and it really started the whole trend of. Uh, making a lot of dance stations in major markets into rap stations. And and he, as he said himself, he's like a older white guy. He's like, I'm not, I don't really listen to hip hop. I just knew there was a market for it and I had to fill it. So anyway, he would always say radio is essentially selling people to advertisers. Like you want to be yep. creative. You want to do all this other stuff. But essentially, if you're not, you know, selling people to advertisers, you're dead. And, um, you know, even with this podcast, like it's about striking a balance. Do I want all of you guys listening to, um, <laughs> to, to be honest go to pelicancoolers.com right now and use the um soft rep coupon code yeah it would be great for us it grows the podcast but it's all about striking the balance I also want to make sure that we're reporting on real news stories and having guys on like you talking about these serious issues like veteran suicide at the same point I want you know this to be a successful podcast if I'm talking you if you we're talking to five people balance. then then, then this is going away, and I will not have a job. You know, well,
1: and what you're what you're providing right there is transparency. Like, do I, as a guy who doesn't work for this podcast but works for the company that that also <laughs> owns it, do I want you to go to Pelican? And buy, I do. The reason being, when these advertisers come and give us money for website real estate or time on the podcast, they're enabling us to keep getting our messages out there to an audience. But I, I won't lie to you. I have adopted over the years a one-for-me, one-for-you mentality. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'll write an article that I'll go, well, this one will be a strong traffic driver. I know that. But then I'll write another article that, in my opinion, is very important. It's an in-depth analysis into something like a way that your perception is being shaped by popular culture. China's investment in Hollywood is a great example. Those articles don't tend to do very well. You know, People don't really want to read – 2000 words about how they're being fucked with you know it's a hard day it's you're already having a hard day why make it harder by reading some hard truths about how even in the captain america civil war they were selling you chinese phones throughout it's a really hard conversation to have i write those articles because if 2000 people read that article that's important some of the other ones i'm aiming for sixty thousand. you know what i mean but every once in a while, I write those 2,000 reader articles because I find that they're important, but I can't unless I have that 60,000 reader article, unless Pelican is willing to buy real estate on the website. So that's not just true for us. It's true for all media news. Yeah. If you're upset about not seeing enough of a certain type of content, the reason why you're not seeing it is because people aren't clicking on it. Yep. The way you can change that is by clicking on that content when you see it. Share that content when you see it. If you think veteran suicides an important story, you may notice it's not getting a lot of coverage in CNN or writers or Fox this week because it's not an election year. Politicians don't really care. Therefore, the media doesn't really care. Nobody much gives a shit that veterans are killing themselves except for veterans and people who know them. You know,
0: I, I wish I could find I, I don't know what the podcast is that Jack said it. It was really old. Um, and I really don't remember which podcast it was, but Jack went on such a great rant that I'll always remember where he was like, I'll, I'll figure out which it was, but he was like, don't tell me that you guys don't want to read this stuff because this is what you click on. Exactly. It, it was like, if I write an article about... You know, China something as you were saying and privacy concerns. He's like, it, it will get a fraction of the hits as if I write an article about a guy at the mall stolen valor dressing up as an army ranger. He's like, this is what you guys oh, want to read. You. Don't tell if me it's not what you guys want to read.
1: Excuse to post a picture of a girl in a bikini. It'll be our best traffic driver. Of the day. <laughs> yeah. You know? The problem is, is that that's not very often newsworthy. Yeah. You know. The the thing is, is that we all have this line in our heads between what we'll actually do and what we see ourselves doing. We'll tell the doctor we only drink socially. We tell our friends that we just read this very interesting article on National Geographic, but in truth, we watched a YouTube video. You know, <laughs> uh, people vote with their clicks. If you want to see more of a certain type of content, you know, give it a few minutes. Share it with your friends. Encourage people to click on it because as long as you click on garbage, garbage is what they're going to give you, yeah. you know? We as writers don't want to write garbage, you know. That's my favorite part about working for NewsRep is that I have never once – that's not true. One time I had an editor come back and say, I'm not going to run this story. It it was an op-ed that – it was a good call, you know. But uh, one time in three years with this company, I've published more than 2,000 pieces of content with NewsRep. Out of those one time, I had an editor come back and say, listen, we're scrapping this. I've certainly gotten notes, you know, to change things. But only one time did I get a hard No. The reason being that News Rep never has given me a narrative to sell. Mm-hmm. News Rep has, Soft Rep, when it, prior to being News Rep, has always been, give us the truth the best you can find it. You know? And fortunately for us, we've had subscribers, we've had a strong reader base that wants that. But when you see CNN, when you see Fox News, these have much broader audiences, much larger audiences. Soft, the people who are listening to this podcast, were preaching to the choir. Yeah they're already clicking on the articles that are giving them hard news about Afghanistan when the rest of the world doesn't give a shit that we're still at war there you know they're already clicking on our articles a great example being i had a senator read one of my pieces about arctic defense before CENTCOM last year so, that article only did like a thousand views wow you know? cuz people don't actually give a shit about arctic defense but it does really matter right so even we, I had a thousand readers click on it on Software Up. I bet you if CNN ran it, they'd get the same thousand. Because yeah. people aren't interested, you know. When you see something that's important, make it important to you and your friends. It sounds small, but every little bit counts, you know. On a web page like Fighter Sleep, for instance, if I notice a dozen views on an article, some of my articles might get twenty thousand views, but I notice when I get a dozen over ten minutes because I'm keeping track all the time, and I go, "That's awesome." That's trending. That means that in some small little group, some small sect of people, this story is resonating in an important way. That's what we're trying to do ultimately. So when you see something, a headline that seems important, don't scroll by and go, oh, that's good. Click on it. Share it with your friends. That's how you change how shitty media has become.
0: Yeah, I have a friend uh, I went to college with who worked in, you know, uh, major media in Queens, New York, uh, he he recently quit doing that and is now working in real estate, and it's strictly for financial reasons. He he was like, you know, this is my passion, this is what I love, this is what I went to college to do, but he's like, it's just not paying the bills, I have to leave it. And he, he wrote a whole explanation for, you know, why print media is dying in some ways, and he talked about, you know, one week, for example— all the important articles that were being covered by the publication he worked for of uh, kidnappings and serious election stuff. And he's like, what article drove the most traffic? He was like, it was a throwaway piece on where Nicki Minaj buys her wigs in New York. He was like, it was a piece that was done at the very last minute to sell some advertisers and that drove the most traffic. So once again, it's like, don't, don't tell me that this is a piece no one gives a shit about. People are clicking on it.
1: This is the one that most people give a shit about. Yeah, exactly. You know? And again, we're not, it's important that we say this. I get escapism. Yeah. You know what I mean? When I clock out, I don't want to go read more like hard hitting news about how shitty life is. You know, I, I can't turn it off, so I'm always there. But I understand that when you've got 15 minutes to scroll through your Facebook feed in between bringing your kids to soccer, making dinner, doing your full time job, cleaning the house, taking the garbage out, and all the rest of the stuff you've got to fill your day with, you've only got 10 minutes for news. You know, you're going to get it in the most digestible way. And the last thing you want is another reason to be depressed or, an, or anxious, right? Yeah. I get it. I really do. But if you want things to get better, you've got to take responsibility for it yourself. The media isn't going to change as long as they're buying gold-plated Ferraris on their Nicki Minaj stories, you <laughs> yep. know? Like, it's just like I wrote in my uh, in my article about China's investments in Hollywood the other day. The reason why America is refusing to engage with this persuasion and like uh, objective is that it's coming disguised as big bags of money. You know, we like things to be simple, and we like lots of money. You know, until we're willing to own that, uh, the media is not going to get better. We've got to own it ourselves. Us as consumers have got to demand more. Again, we're preaching to the choir because soft reps, news reps, fighter sweeps, readers are the guys that are looking for informed guys and informed analysis we need that notion to grow we need it to and we need the mainstream media to embrace that same concept that it's not just about selling traffic it's also about doing the doing a service to the population right now we're just selling traffic on the mainstream side they're not trying to do a service we got to get back to that but they won't unless we demand it
0: well said man uh well once again Go to thenewsrep.com. Check out Alex's pieces, fightersweep.com, at fightersweep on Twitter on Instagram. Alex is on Twitter at AlexHollings52, at archetype52 on Instagram. And I guess that's about it, man. I always love speaking with you because this is one of those shows that I thought would be a quick 45-minute show. We went about an hour over that. And uh, you know I have like a, a few notes to hit in front of me, and we ended up going all over the place. And I love it, man. It's always a great yeah. but It's
1: always a blast coming on, man. <laughs> I really appreciate you having me. I did want to make one more announcement sure. about all those domains. I just heard from my boss. Uh, starting very soon, it's not going to be thenewsrep.com anymore. It'll just be newsrep.com. Great. Which is awesome. I like that way better. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it'll really streamline things. So pretty soon, you'll be able to just type in newsrep.
0: Awesome. All right. Cool, man. I'll I'll talk to you soon, Alex.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.